Are you a physical therapist who wants to pay off your student loans, gain financial independence, and have true autonomy in your work and your life? The best way to do that is to open your own practice. But how? What are the steps that practically guarantee your success? Well, that's what you're about to learn. The Performance Doc Academy podcast is your audio blueprint to opening your very own physical therapy practice. So let's go. All right, guys. <laughs> I think um, oftentimes clinicians know how to treat, right? They know how to treat a patient that has already been referred to them. But at, at the same time, they realize when they go out on their own, it's more about it's, it's more to it than just treating. It's about how do you convert. And during this episode, we, we're going to share with you how to turn a prospect into a patient. Um, there's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it. And we'll give both sides as we've made, uh, I, well, I won't speak for Jared. Jared doesn't make any mistakes, but I've made some mistakes along the way. <laughs> and um, I'm going to definitely share some of those. And, and uh, I think the idea of this whole how to turn a prospect into a patient, it, it really is what the patient is looking for to hear from you or to see from you that allows them to feel confident that they should be a patient of yours. So when you say, Jared, it's usually certain things they like to see and hear that is um, that makes them more convertible. Yeah, I think it's also important. Let's start with the concept of what a prospect is. Like, let's define for everybody what 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 is a prospect? Would you say that that's somebody that calls your cold calls you, they find you on Google, is a prospect, um, someone that's referred by another patient, is it a referral from a doctor? Because there's there's different levels of prospects, right? Based upon um, how much that person knows you and how much that person knows about your business. Right. I mean, I think those are all those examples are prospects, right? But like you said, there's different levels, um, and you could like name them based on temperature, right? So like you have a cold prospect who doesn't know anything about you. Um, <clears throat> you have like a warm lead, right? Somebody who has heard of you maybe through somebody, but they're not sure that you're what they need, that kind of thing. Or you have like a hot prospect. Their friend was just in here. They tore their ACL. They know they need you. Like there's no question about it. Yeah. So we're going to focus today mostly on the, on the, on your cold leads and a lead and a prospect. Um, in the marketing world, those are different things, but for the most part, we're going to basically use those terms interchangeably. Um, essentially a potential patient. And that could be uh, someone that got you uh, online, they called, uh, doctor referral, whatever. And when it's a hot lead, you know, the whole process is obviously a hell of a lot easier. So we're going to focus on the cold, cold leads, people that maybe found you uh, through uh, your, your Google ads, Facebook ads, Instagram, whatever. And the warm leads, which are people that uh, found you maybe through those ways, but they've also been to your website. Maybe they spoke to a friend of theirs. Maybe they put a question out into a Facebook group. Hey, does anybody have any recommendations for physical therapists? And somebody recommended you. So they've heard of you of a little bit, um, but they're not sold yet, right? They're, they, you have not converted them and there is no buy-in uh, per se. Um, and so you and I both believe um, in a singular concept that some therapists don't believe in. And this is the concept of giving people stuff for free. And, you know, one of the things that, that no one ever says no to for the most part <laughs> is free stuff. You know, um, I think there was a study done. This might, this might be in the book persuasion. I, I can't remember where I came across this, where they put candies in the waiting room and they had, uh, 
a bowl of candies and they, 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 uh, put one cent. So the candies cost one cent <laughs> and they just saw how many people, you know, bought the candies for one cent. Obviously it's not very much money, right? One cent for a candy. And, uh, you know, a couple people, you know, took a candy and then they put a bowl out of candies and said for free and the bowl was gone in like a day, right? It's just <laughs> the fact that it's free makes all the difference in the world, even if you don't charge very much. And a lot of therapists, they feel, well, you know, I, my time is very valuable. I spent a lot for my doctorate degree. I don't want to give anything away for free. But the reality is when you're building a business, that, that is the number one way to get people in the door is to provide them value. Not only does this kick off this concept of reciprocity where they feel like they need to give something back to you, but people don't really know what they're purchasing, right? We all know that people don't 100% know what physical therapy is, and they certainly don't know anything about you as a physical therapist if they're a, uh, if they're a cold prospect. That's true. And I, I think uh, with a cold, pro- cold prospect, I, I think of it this way. I like to paint the, the – Jared, we've all been there, right? You paint the picture. You paint the scene where – uh, we're going to bypass the fact that it's a phone call some, most of the time, right? We're going to say, all right, you get them in, right? You convince them to come in, and they're in front of you. And so that whole scene of like, okay, they're sitting in front of you. They really don't know much about you, and they have this, like, anxiousness about them. What, what am I going to receive? What is he going to tell me? They're already anxious about what they are dealing with that currently has no answer or solution. And you're sitting there... Uh, trying to share with them for one what you know what you do how you can what are the what are the things you can do to help them and then once you get to the point of saying all right look this is what's going on oftentimes clinicians have that trouble like saying okay well specifically in real uh, not layman's terms but patient friendly terms where they understand the diagnosis they understand um, what you're going to do in terms of uh, treatment goes. It's always that, it's like that mental block where you're like, I, 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 all right, how do I get around to the fact that they're going to have to eventually pay me? Right? It ends up being like this awkwardness towards the end. Like you really, people put it all the way towards the end and you're like, okay, it's going to, and that's going to be $200. Like, you know, like, it's, like, it's like this whole piece where it's so awkward um, when it gets towards the end. And I think, why why people have difficulty one is just because of, we we don't we're not taught how to sell right we, we we're taught how to heal taught how to treat but we don't we're not taught how to sell and although we do value our time we do believe it's worth a certain amount i don't think we've come to grips on how much that amount should be so oftentimes when we're putting out numbers of uh, not numbers but we're putting out what our rates are we don't truly believe in it or we haven't own the fact that the value that we're going to provide to this patient prospect is worth that. So it ends up being like, yeah, all right. So you you almost ask like, so that would be $200. Like, you know, there's almost like the, the inflection in your voice shows a lack of confidence and the patient or prospect can sense that. And then, um, the, 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 the conversion is really, um, it's gone by then. So, uh, Maybe it's just me. I've had that. <laughs> maybe I, no one said anything, but maybe that's just me in terms of my experience with some of the awkwardness early on in the, in my uh, career. But I do know that that can happen at times. What do you think, Jared? I mean, I definitely think that 
sales is its own skill. And I think what we need as therapists is a system for selling. And if you have a system for selling, then when it comes time for the ask, um, the, it, it'll be a lot more natural. And that's what we want to try to give you guys today is, is a system for selling. Yeah, I and so let's, okay. let's, no, I was just going to say, care. I think like as healthcare providers, like the idea of selling can feel kind of like icky to people. They're like, you know, you don't, you feel a little like dirty. Like I'm selling this to you, you know, but if you really believe in what you're doing and you can bring someone in for free to show them what you're able to do, um, then it feels less like selling because you know, you can help this person, right? You've, you've already assessed them. You already know you can help them. Right. So then it feels much less like you're selling them this thing. Right. Sure. Well, I mean, good, good sales is really showing people the value in something and giving them the opportunity to buy it. I mean, that's it. You don't have to convince anything of, you don't have to convince anybody of anything. You know what I mean? Like think about the last time you bought a car, right? Did you ever just buy a car without test driving it? Like, no. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what's the worst thing a car salesman can do? You, I'm sure you've had this happen, right? You walk in to buy a car and the first thing the car salesman does is says, Oh great. Take a seat. They sit you down in a chair. That's the first thing that they do, which is the worst thing you could possibly do. By the way, they sit you down. They want your name. They want your information. They want your email. They want stuff from you. Right. And then like, what kind of car do you currently drive? You know, what will you be doing? They start asking you a million questions. This is like the worst possible way to sell a car. And this is what they all do. And I don't understand why, because it doesn't really work very well. I've actually gotten into the habit when I go into a dealership now, they say, uh, here, come on over, take a seat. I usually just say no, <laughs> like, no, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to stay standing. Whatever conversation that you want to have with me, we can have while we look at cars. <laughs> like that's basically <laughs> what I tell them because I absolutely refuse to sit down anymore. So in, in reality, what sells cars is basically the opportunity to buy a car that's amazing. And so if you just show somebody the value of the vehicle and how do you do that? Well, they have to experience it, right? I mean, have you ever bought a car you didn't take for a test drive? It's like, no. no. Right? It's like, what, what, what do you want to know? You want to know what the options are. You want to know how it feels. You want to know how it smells. You want to know how it looks. You have to experience the vehicle. If you don't really experience the vehicle, it's very difficult to convince yourself to actually buy that. And experiencing the thing you're going to buy is what sales is. It is not necessary to convince somebody of something. They just need to experience it. And so that really brings us to our first key point here, which is you need to offer something to your prospect that resembles the actual service that you will deliver so that they can actually get a sample, like a taste, like you walk into an ice cream shop, you've never had Rocky Road before, you ask for a sample. They give you a sample of Rocky Road, you're like, oh my God, this is delicious. And then you get an entire cup. But without the sample, you're not really willing to take the risk. So it's something that's new for a lot of people, physical therapy. Maybe they never had physical therapy, so they need a sample. And how do you give somebody a sample of something? Well, most therapists use the word consult, which is the absolute wrong word to use. So they might say, here, come on in for a consult. The problem is a consultant basically just talks for the most part. I mean, that's what the... That's what the general population thinks a consultant does, right? You hire a consultant, they come in, they look at some stuff and they give you advice. That's, you know, that's kind of what we equate. Now that's not actually exactly what a consultant does, but that's what most people think, right? So when you have a consultation, if you've ever gone to a a physician's office and you had a consult, usually they have a conversation with you. Actually, they'll sometimes even sit you behind a desk. I had a consult with a neurologist once and 
that's where it was. They sat me behind a desk and just talked to me. So a consult implies that you're going to receive some sort of advice and you're going to have a conversation. The problem is that's really not what we do as therapists. Of course, it's part of what we do, but there's just so much more. And the individual um, isn't really experiencing anything. So to use the car analogy, that would be a little bit like going into a car dealership and saying that you want to buy a car. And rather than just test driving the car, the salesperson tries to explain to you what the experience of driving the car is like. Like that really wouldn't work very well. You'd be like, you know, that's very superficial. It's not the same as the experience. So we want to get away from the concept of offering consultations. And we want to move into this concept of offering assessments. And at our clinic, we used to offer uh, something called a free pain assessment. And we include the word pain because that is the thing that people are searching for a solution for. And we use the word assessment because an assessment sounds like we're actually going to do something. Like they're actually going to get a sample of what it is that we offer. You guys use the phrase uh, free pain and performance assessment because you add the performance component to it because that's the population that you work with. But the number one thing that we encourage everybody in our mastermind group to do is to switch over from this concept of consult to a free pain and performance, uh, free pain and performance assessment or free pain assessment and to offer this for free. And we basically check in with them, as you know, every single time that we meet with them and we say, well, how many of these have you done? Right? Because when you, when you, when you think about it, if the conversion process begins with a test drive, it begins with your potential patient experiencing your work, you should literally be offering everybody a free pain assessment, like as many people as you possibly can. You should be doing five of these things a week. You should offer your mailman a free pain assessment. We had a, we had a, our UPS guy, right? We offered our UPS guy a free pain assessment. He became a patient. You just, just offer them as many as you possibly can. And we'll talk in a minute what you do in a free pain assessment. But the more free pain assessments you can offer, the more patients you will have. It is just that simple. Yeah. I think too, in regards to like mistakes that we made in the past with kind of both of those points, assessment as well as being stingy, um, one of our mentors uh, a while back when we were fully cash-based had convinced us that we should be charging something for these free assessments. <laughs> um, and so, but not a lot, just a little bit, right? Um, so we started charging $20 for the assessments. I don't think we lost a ton of prospects. I think we still had a decent amount of people, you know, take us up on the $20 assessment, but they were actually harder to convert because these people felt like, well, I got your service for $20. Now you're going to ask me to pay $120 for the next visit. Um, exactly. And so it was like that that feeling of the reciprocity was gone already because they felt like they gave you something for your time. Um, exactly. So we actually, you know, ha had a harder time converting when we did not offer them for free. That's 100% correct. The moment you start charging for something, you are now asking for something in return. And you're right, that kills reciprocity, number one. Number two is it creates a completely unrealistic expectation that your services are worth $20. Number three, it devalues your services because now right. you're just saying your services are worth $20. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and yeah, they feel like, okay, well, I got what I came here for and I paid for it. So, you know, yeah, I, 100%. Like, like, and, and what the hell is that $20 going to do for you anyway? Nothing. Right, right. Nothing. Wow. Like, well, you made 20 bucks? I think we did that uh, for reason, like a month and we were like, this is stupid. What are we doing? Is, yeah. <laughs> The reason that some people suggest that you charge uh, up front 
is because you want to make sure that you have serious people that making that make serious commitments, right? Right. You charge for something in the beginning, you're less likely to get looky lose. You're 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 more likely to get people that are actually willing to, excuse me, to pull out their wallet. But um, there are way more drawbacks than there are benefits um, to the so-called low ticket offer in the beginning and charging something for it. Uh, yeah, you could. You could do it, uh, but I would rather just have a couple of people. I mean, our conversion rate was so incredibly high on our free pain assessments. It's like the people, no, very few people are going to agree to get a free pain assessment unless there's a possibility that they're going to purchase your services. Most people who just, they're, they're absolutely not interested at all. They know what they're walking into. They know why you're doing it. They will say no. Mm-hmm. They just won't come in for free. They just won't do it. And the very few people that will, don't worry about it. Okay, so you gave somebody something for free. Maybe they're not a patient. Maybe they won't convert, but they loved it so much. They still want the re- they still want to um, provide you the reciprocity. So what do they do? They just go and tell other people how great you are. And now you essentially have a fan who's walking around telling everybody how wonderful your services are, uh, even though all they got was something for free. And that's great. Now you have a liaison. So... Even if that person doesn't convert, you still want them to experience your services. And the more people that experience your services, the more people are going to walk around talking about your services. That's exactly what you want. You want to be known in your community as the go-to person. And you do that by touching as many people as possible. That's right. And, and so going and, and building off that, when you have these prospects in front of you, for them to be a good prospect and for you to convert them, they have to have two beliefs, right? Ultimately, they have to believe they can, they can get better. That's one belief. And then they have to believe that you're the person that can get them better. And so you go back to what Carrie said in terms of these different leads. You have a cold, warm, and hot. The cold lead, you got to do a lot more convincing. That you got you got to do more convincing when it comes to those two beliefs, right? Especially the one where you can get them better. They may feel they can get better but they have to be convinced that you can get them better. And so when when uh, Jared and I started working together, I thought he had a great way of helping me structure what my assessment was or my delivery was during the assessment. And uh, Jared, you got to share this with him. I think it's golden. And I've used it, I use it now on a consistent basis. And it's really helped me become more efficient in my assessment and more consistent, right? And so every assessment is delivered this way. And with consistency, that yields a more predictable result, right? And so I was more, uh, my my conversion rate had went from, and and I would say my conversion rate is about 80%. And I I truly believe it went to 90%. And and people like, oh, well, if you, it's only one extra patient, maybe, right? That tend to one or one and a half. But it makes all the difference if you have, like Jared said, you're doing five pain and performance uh, assessments a week. Like that changes the game a lot over the big, um, over the long haul. So, Jared, go over your, to me, golden way of like converting these, these prospects. That's right. So, the, the two beliefs are to review I can get better. One, two, you can help me get better. Those, they must believe these things. And so the story starts back when I had a big old house in New Jersey and we had a flood in our basement 
And uh, immediately after we had the flood, obviously, we started calling plumbers. We called several plumbers to come over and figure out what was going on and, and so on and so forth. So the first first guy walks in and he kind of like sees the flood in the basement. He looks at it. He's like, OK, he's like looking around. He goes, all right. Yeah, yeah, I can help you. Uh, and I'm like, uh, OK, how are you? Ah, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. He was just basically just kind of blowing me off and trying to convince me that he was a good plumber. Like essentially that was it. And that we kind of like dismissed this guy. We we're like, no, thank you. You're not for us. So the second, the second plumber came in, he looked around a little bit. He says, well, I think it might be this. I think it might be this. I think it might be this. And it might take, it was very sort of nondescript. We're like, okay, thank you very much. You're, you're not really for us. We sent him away. The third plumber that came looked around, investigated talked to us, investigated some more, and he said, okay, look, here's what happened. What's wrong is X, Y, and Z. He laid out exactly what was wrong with our plumbing system. Then he said, okay, listen, why that you got into this trouble is X, Y, and Z. He said, you have a metal pipe that goes into a plastic pipe and their hair got clogged. And he, explained, he laid out exactly why we ended up with a flood. In other words, the cause. Then he said, okay, here's how I'm going to fix it, right? He laid out exactly the plan, step by step. Then he said, here's how long it's going to take, and here's how much it's going to cost. And from that, I developed the what, why, and the three hows. Because I was so convinced by what this guy did, I hired him on the spot. I mean, it was just like the best explanation I had ever heard. He didn't sell me on anything. He didn't try to convince me. He didn't tell me not to worry about it. He wasn't wishy-washy. It was what's wrong, why it happened, how I'm going to fix it, how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost. It's the what, why, and the three hows. It's exactly what every consumer wants to know when they're buying anything. What is wrong is the diagnosis, specifically the tissue diagnosis, not the PT diagnosis, the tissue diagnosis. And we want to get as close as we possibly can. Now, I know that there are some folks out there that are thinking to themselves, well, but we don't really do tissue diagnoses. What? Listen, you really want to have an idea what the source of the person's pain is. And you give it to them in Latin, and then you immediately convert it into English. So the what component would be something like this. All right, what's wrong is that I think you have supraspinatus tendinitis. That's Latin. You immediately convert it into English. What that means is, and that's the phrase that you use, what that means is that the tendon of your rotator cuff on the top of your shoulder that's responsible for stabilizing the ball and the socket of your shoulder has an irritation in it. The reason you do that is because you just put yourself in a position of being the wonderful doctor that actually explains to people what all the jargon means. And so now not only do they know the technical term, and they're glad that you know the technical term, but now they know exactly what that term means. That helps them with the belief that you can help them to get better. Because not only did you just explain it to them, so that means that you are good at explaining things, but you were able to identify the specific reason that person has pain. That's so much better than saying, well, you got some tightness and you got some weakness and you got some shoulder dysfunction and we just label it dysfunction. If you can actually put a label on it, people love the specificity of a description.
Now, I know that there's other people out there that are listening to this who would be like, ah, knee-jerk reaction, pain science. If you tell people <laughs> what their diagnosis is, <laughs> all of a sudden, you're, they're going to start catastrophizing, you're medicalizing. Listen, I've done it both ways. And nine out of 10 times, people say to me after I give them something very specific, wow, it's really nice to actually know what's going on. Everybody else has just blown me off and told me that X, Y, and Z. Well, and so right. the specificity actually is, is, is what people want, believe it or not. The second component is why. So if the what is the source of the pain, in other words, it's the actual tissue that is causing the problem, the why is the cause. And the why is always a story. This led to this, led to this, led to this. So in, in the plumbing example, what the, the why that the plumber gave us was this. He said, look, you have a sump pump. Your sump pump didn't work because outside your house, you have a collapsed pipe. And the reason the pipe is collapsed is because a tree root ran through that pipe. The reason you had a flood is because you had this kind of connection and you had hair that got stuck that overflowed in your wall, went down, filled the basement, and so on and so forth. That was my why. Now, coincidentally, in the same year, our neighbor also had a flood in the basement. But the why for the neighbor is completely different than our why. Our neighbor had a crack in the basement, right? So they had a crack in the foundation, they had a leak. So understand that the what in both cases is exactly the same. What is the what? A flood in your basement. That's what's wrong. But the why is completely different. The story that led to my flood is completely different than the story that led to my neighbor's flood. So in the case of the shoulder, you might say some to say something like something like this, right? You might say something like, listen, as I did your assessment, I noticed that you've got a lot of stiffness in the upper back and the upper back's a little bit in a hunched position. We call that a kyphosis. And as a result of that, everything is tilted forward. And we know from research that if your shoulder blade, which lives on your rib cage, is tilted forward, there's more of a tendency to get a pinch in the front of the shoulder when you raise your arm. And because you're a painter and you have to do a lot of overhead work, as you raise your arm, the arm bone is bumping up against the roof, which we call the acromion, and living in that space is this little tendon called the supraspinatus. And so that's why you ended up in trouble. And that story could be completely different for any patient that you see, but it's a this led to this, led to this, led to this. And finally, the how. The how is a step-by-step -step strategy for how you are going to get this person better. So in the example that I gave, you might say something like, so, uh, Bob, in order to help your shoulder, the first thing we need to do is restore the ability of your upper back to straighten out, which we call extension. And we're going to do that through some exercise. We're going to do it through some mobilization and we're going to do it through some stretching. That'll restore the posture of your upper body and set your shoulder blade in the right spot. The second thing we need to do is strengthen some muscles around your shoulder blade that lift the roof up and out of the way when you raise your arm. And we call that the serratus anterior and lower trapezius. Those names aren't important to you, Bob, but it's important to know there are specific muscles that need to be strengthened. Once we do that, we're able to remove the compression on the tendon that is painful. And as a result, this tendonitis can start to go away. And so that's like literally a step-by-step -step explanation of what it is that you are going to do, which we call the how. Then you go into the next how, which is how long it's going to take. And as most of you know, uh, a tendonitis, if it's treated properly, can take four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. So you might say to Bob, listen, Bob, 
I think that we're going to feel better in just a couple of sessions. And I think it's going to take us about six to 10 sessions to get you all better. That's my prediction based upon other patients that we've seen with this particular problem and how irritable your shoulder is. That's what I can tell based on today's assessment. And based on that, we charge about $150 per session, depending on what it is that we're doing and whether you book an hour, a half hour. So if you just take that 150 and you multiply it by the number of sessions that we need, the minimum number of sessions to get better might be six. I can't do this math in my head. For, so you just, you know, you can essentially do the math and say, listen, this is what I predict it's going to cost you to make this thing all better. And if that sounds good to you, we can get started. If you have any trouble with uh, the financial component of it, we can try to get it done in fewer sessions. I'll just have to give you more homework in order to make this possible. And at the end, you just say, Bob, how does that sound to you? None of that sounded like a sales pitch, right? It was just me going through what it is I'm supposed to do as a therapist. And in the end, Bob has all the information he needs. And then when you say, how does that sound to you? Bob has the freedom to say, well, actually I have a question. Or he has the freedom to say, that sounds amazing. How do we get started? And that's ultimately what you want to do. Now, there's a secret ninja trick to this whole thing that very few people, I, I, I teach it very, very, what I say is, I, I very rarely teach it um, and it is very difficult to do, but I'm going to explain it to you. The real way to make this work in your favor is at the beginning of your free pain assessment, before you start asking any questions. So the person's come in, you're sitting down, you're going to have a conversation. Before you begin, you say to the person, the usual questions. Hey, have you ever had physical therapy before? How'd you hear about us? All that good stuff. Then you say, okay, Bob, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you some questions. I'm going to perform an assessment on you. And at the end of that assessment, I'm going to tell you exactly what's wrong, exactly why you have the problem, how I'm going to fix it, how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost. And we call that future pacing. You tell them at the beginning of the assessment that you're going to do that at the end. The reason you do that is because most people don't believe you. And that's a good thing. It's kind of like, I don't know if you know the magician David Copperfield. Back in the, in the early 90s, David Copperfield was very big. And what he used to do is he used to basically tell you what he was going to do. So he would say something like, I'm going to walk through the Great Wall of China. And you're like, no fucking way. He's not walking through the Great Wall of China. And then he does. And you're like, oh my God. Then he had another one where he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. He's like, I'm going to make the Statue of Liberty disappear. Everyone's like, no, you're not. And then he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. It's a little bit like the Babe Ruth thing where you point to the bleachers. You're like, I'm going to hit the home run. And everyone's like, yeah, right. And then you hit the home run. When you future pace your assessment in the beginning by telling somebody what you're going to do, their knee-jerk reaction is not to believe you because very few people can do it and no physician has ever given them that information in such a succinct way. Then you do an assessment on them, posture, gait, range of motion, muscle testing, special tests, all the stuff that you normally do. You sit them down at the end and you say, okay, Bob, here's what's wrong. Here's why it happened. Here's how I'm going to fix it, how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost. And Bob's head explodes because you told him exactly what you're going to do. He didn't believe you. And then at the end, you did it. And that was like Babe Ruth pointing to the bleachers and then hitting the home run. At that moment, honestly, you're done. The sale is over. 
they have the two beliefs. They believe that they can get better because you just told them exactly what was wrong and how you were going to fix it. And they believe that you're the person to help them because you're a freaking magician at that point. Mm-hmm. I think it also, like by future pacing in that way, it allows you to control the the assessment a little bit better as well because they're not like asking you a million questions while you're doing what you do because they're waiting to see if you really are going to tell them at the end. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise, right, they start asking you stuff along the way. And if they, you know, they're going to do that anyway, right? They're going to ask you, you're going to find stuff. They're going to be like, oh, what does that mean? Oh, is that normal? Oh, is this good? (laughs) And you should really never answer them. You should always push it to the end. So what you say, what you say to them in order to push it to the end is you say something like, oh, I know you want to know exactly what's going on, but I'm going to, I'm going to let you know everything at the end. And you just, just push it towards the end of the the essay. We call it at the end, we call it the reveal. When you basically sit down and you reveal all of these things, you push everything to the reveal. Do not give them information as you're assessing them. That's really, really, really important in order for this process to work properly. Mm -hmm. The other thing um, I think Leon does well is he'll, during the, how long is it going to take? He'll ask them, how long do they think it should take? Um, just to get an idea of what their expectations are. Um, he'll get, you know, a whole range of answers. Sometimes it's like, well, I want him to be better tomorrow. Um, sometimes it's like, well, you're the expert. You're, you're supposed to tell me, you know. Um, but he always, like, gets the answer out of them first just to get an idea of, okay, like, what are you expecting in this process? And then he'll let them know, you know, whether that expectation is reality or not. And then also what I do is I set the expectation. Uh, I have them set the expectation so therefore they have patience, right? And so for instance, if they, oftentimes what's cool clinician, this is very important. So I, I think this is key for me to, to discuss this is that when you're in a cash-based model or out of network model, oftentimes there's this pressure that you put upon yourself to get people better faster, right? I have to be better. I have to get people better faster than the next person, insurance-based. And so before I started accepting insurances, I had that pressure where uh, I had the pressure upon myself. So therefore, I was almost under treating. Right. And so if Jared said, you know, uh, a sprain or a tear or tendonitis or tendinosis would take a certain amount of weeks. Right. I would try to cut that in half. And the 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 major measure that I would um, use would be pain so very subjective so the moment that their pain dropped we we deem them better they can take it from there but it will always come back right so technically i wasn't getting them better faster because it kept coming back so if you added those number of visits it was end up being the same or more so when i when i started doing the method that carrie mentioned which was hey jared based on what you've been feeling how long do you think it should take? Jared may say three months. So, And I've been all this time thinking, man, I got to get it done in three sessions. Jared is committed mentally to three months. So his expectation is different. Well, And then the fact that if you over-deliver by getting him better in four weeks or six weeks, you still have now deem yourself as better than the alternative, which is Google or the next person or the person that they may have been to beforehand. And you have not undertreated the diagnosis based on this peer pressure that you may have put upon yourself. So I, I've been doing that and I think it really has helped open the door 
for me um, to get the patient's buy-in by them actually helping me set the expectation. You know, there are times where I say, well, you know, we're going to read three months. That's great that we talked. That's great that you said. Great that I know that's what you expect. But I'm going to try to get it. We're going to reassess in four weeks and see what progress we have made. So now there's this urgency. Yes, I heard you. You keep that in mind. But um, we're going to try to get it better. But also, Jared, too, what I do is if you're going to say it takes eight weeks, like if they said, hey, let's keep it. Let me keep it consistent. Three months. Then why don't we schedule out the first six weeks? Just so that now we're committed in, you know, going after this particular, you know, with this particular treatment. So, you know, how long it's going to take. You told me you think it's going to take around three months. Let's start with four to six weeks on the books. So now you get that commitment, which is long term, and then you can go from there. So those are just little tidbits. And then one last thing I will say, when Jared was, to the audience, when Jared was explaining, when he talked about pain science um, and how that can impact the way you may present or or try to close or try to turn a prospect into a patient. I don't know many pain science successful clinic owners. And what I mean by that is they are usually trying to get their strategy unfortunately from a business standpoint is to convince a patient that they don't need them. <laughs> like this is idea like hey you don't need me it's not that bad do x y and z where the flip side what jared showed you was to me sales science sales science so sales with an s science right which is it's not getting over on a patient what it is is making sure a patient understand exactly what it is that is going on so what why and the three halves, which is very important. So now it's more inclusive and it actually is personalized to what they have going on. A lot of these patients nowadays, man, they are obsessed with knowing what is going on. So the fact that you are going to undermine through pain science what is going on, I think creates more anxiety. What Jared has shown or what Jared uses through sales science is it's almost a, comf- a, a comforting strategy. Like, let me comfort you because the, the questions and the anxiousness about what's going on that you don't currently know stops here. And I'm the person that's going to share with you what's going on, and I'm going to share with you how I can fix it. So pick me, right, to get you better, and that's what you're doing towards the end. And then lastly, I was I, yeah, like, I love the term sales science, yeah. but I don't even know if that's, if that's the reason that it works. I, I mean – there's absolutely some science here with regards to the sales component. But if I were to tell you that something is big and scary in your closet, but I didn't tell you what it was and it was making noise and it was banging on the door and it was growling. And then I told you to go to the door and open the door, but I didn't tell you what was behind the door. You'd be scared as shit. But if I told you that what was behind the door was a baby puppy, you'd be like, Oh, okay, well I'll go open the door. Not knowing something is way scarier than knowing. You know what I'm saying? If you've got a, if you've got something growing in like on your body and you're like, Oh my God, is this cancer? Yeah. And you don't know. And you go to the dermatologist and they're like, Hmm, you seem to have a skin dysfunction, but everything is going to be fine. You're like, <laughs> what, what do you, what is it? You'd rather know what it is. Right. right? I mean, the, it's not that, um, it's not that pain science has it wrong. It's just that we're going about 
the objective differently. We are getting rid of the mystery. We are getting rid of the unknown. We are taking the unknown and we are making it known. And when you know something, you have power. When you know something, you are no longer making up stories in your head. I mean, I can't even tell you, I did an evaluation on uh, somebody yesterday and uh, went through the whole thing and her doctor had told her, well, I can give you, she had knee pain, bilateral knee pain. And you know, she's in her maybe late sixties, early seventies, maybe her doctor had told her, yep. Uh, it seems that you've got, uh, yeah, I think it's probably arthritis in your knees and you know, you probably need a knee replacement at some point in time. I can give you some injections and that was it. So she came to me and she was like all freaked out that she was going to need knee replacements. And that her whole thing now is, well, how, well, how, what do I do to avoid the knee replacement? I did an evaluation with her. And from my evaluation, I said to her, listen, here's what's wrong. You don't, you don't have pain from inside your knees. You've got patellofemoral syndrome. And I just outlined for her what that was. Well, you have pain underneath your kneecaps. Your knees are fine. She had full range of motion in her knees, full strength in her quads. She could squat. I mean, there was, there was no knee replacement in her future that I could see. Labeling the thing that she had correctly and basically explaining to her scientifically exactly why the front of her knees were hurting and were a bit swollen was so much of a relief for this individual versus this amorphous answer that the physicians always give, which is you'll have arthritis, you'll probably need X, Y, and Z surgery. So taking something and making it known is, is way better, especially when you're correct and especially when you're specific. It helps with the sale, but for me, I think it also tremendously helps with relieving anxiety because now they know that you know, they know as well, and there's no longer a mist. There's no monster under the bed. There's no creature in the closet. It's like, no, it's here. It is. This is what we have. We're adults. We're going to deal with it. You know, I just think that's better. Yeah. I think like you kind of said, pain science, as well as this approach, both speak to like, I can get better. Right. That belief. So I think that it, whatever, you know, whatever method you use, that's one of the beliefs that the patient has to have. So if it's like a, you know, a chronic pain patient who doesn't have that belief, then you may need to use pain science, you know, on that person. But in general, like the what, why, and the three hows works very well on patients, you know, who... Right. I mean, the origin of pain science as a, as a modality is specifically for individuals where there is no known source of pain. Right. Right. Chronic pain syndrome, fibromyalgia, phantom limb pain. These are all things that don't have a known source of pain. In an orthopedic setting, 95% of the people that walk in the door, no matter how long they've had pain for, they have an identifiable thing that is causing their pain. Right. It's just it's just that simple. You have a knee. Someone's had knee. But this person has had knee pain for years. It would be obtuse for me to be like, Pain science. I guess she's just, she's just screwed. She just has pain. I, I got to just basically, you know, train her brain to not be in pain anymore. But the reality is she had physical imbalances in her system that were aggravating her knee that need to be addressed. And if they're addressed, there's a hope in hell of reducing the inflammation. Is her pain going to go away completely? Maybe not, but it's a mechanical problem. I don't care how long it's been there in an orthopedic setting. Our job is to find the mechanical thing. And the cool part is, this is just a little, a little ninja hack. While you're doing your assessment, the moment you figure it out, tell them, but don't tell them the answer. So what you say is you <laughs> like, this is what I, this is what I did with her. I said, um, I, I basically, 
the moment I figured out it wasn't her tibia fem, her, her tib fem joint, and it was a patellofemoral joint, the moment I figured it out, because she had full full quad strength, full knee flexion, full knee extension, overpressure, no pain. But then when she did an active knee extension against resistance, she had pain right under her kneecap in the last 30 degrees. I was like, oh, this is patellofemoral pain. And then I did a patella grind and I was like, oh man, it's crunchy. And the moment I found all this, I was like, oh, good. I got good news for you. And she was like, what? And I said, I'll tell you at the end. <laughs> and, what, and what you do is you open a loop. And what that does is it, it's not that you're doing it to be manipulative. You're doing it to make somebody excited. It's, a, it's exactly what you do when you're at a restaurant and the waiter comes over and says, the special is amazing. And you're like, the special, we have grouper, it's, it's a pan fried with a, a almond crust and you're like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. Or they tell you about a dessert, right? And you're like, oh my God, that sounds wonderful, right? But then you have to wait to be served, right? You just have to wait. And all that anticipation of the good news uh, creates positive affect. And that positive affect is what you want. You want people to be in good moods, to be excited about physical therapy. And one way that you do that is you tell them you got good news, you know what's going on, and that you make them wait to hear it at the very end. The other reason you do it, by the way, is you don't want to stop your eval and stop your flow and start explaining things, right? Because then you lose the flow of the evaluation. So there's a, a practical reason to do it as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple more things that came up, at, Leon, as you were describing uh, wonderfully, you know, sort of the, the execution of this thing. And uh, one of those things is this concept when you mentioned about um, you would try to uh, get people better faster and you would shortchange them. And I think this speaks to the very important differentiation between a sign and a symptom. Mm. And a lot of people don't really think about this differentiation and don't understand it. A symptom is something that the patient reports. Pain is a symptom. A sign is something that we can test that is not necessarily identifiable by the patient themselves. And signs always precede symptoms. So for example, the signs of a cardiovascular disease, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, occur before the person has chest pain. By the time they have chest pain, it's too late, right? They've already got the disease. So, you know, angina is the symptom, but elevated cholesterol and high blood pressure are signs. You can't necessarily feel that you've got elevated cholesterol or elevated blood pressure for the most part. So when you're making somebody better, your goal is not to get rid of the symptoms. Your goal is to get rid of the signs. And if you take a minute to explain to the patient the difference, they can start to understand what your metrics are. They're wanting to get out of pain. But if you say to them, listen, I know you want to get out of pain, but pain is just the symptom. And then I'll literally tell them the story of how people get heart attacks. I'll be like, listen, you have high cholesterol, high blood pressure. That precedes the chest pain and the heart attack, right? We don't want to focus on the chest pain and the heart attack. We want to focus on the signs that led to this problem. And those signs are inadequate thoracic extension, weak serratus anterior, weak lower trapezius. And we give them the exact things that we're going to use as metrics to make sure that we clear out the imbalances and the signs so that they don't become symptoms again. And when you change the narrative a little bit, you get people to stop focusing on their symptoms and you say, listen, I'm so glad that your symptoms are better. You're 65% you're better with regards to your symptoms. Now, I literally use the words, remember, because you're educating them the whole time. I say, now let's check your signs. And then I go through and I muscle test them and I range of motion test them. And I say, listen, I think that your symptoms are 65% better. I think your strength is about 25% better. So we've got about 75% more to go. Because remember, we want to get rid of these signs so your problem doesn't come back. That's one great way along your process to 
get people's attention away from pain and more into the actual impairments that you are trying to address that you know cause the problem or that may cause the problem in the first place. Um, the other thing that came to mind uh, when you were when you were describing what you're describing was this concept of scheduling. And I know everybody does scheduling differently. And one of the ways to reduce people's anxiety, when you say to them, this is going to take six weeks to get better, usually right after that, if I notice in their face that they look a little apprehensive about that concept of it taking that long, I'll immediately use this backup phrase. I'll say, but listen, it doesn't mean you're going to be in physical therapy for six weeks. Mm. It just means that this problem is going to take six weeks to get better. Cause I can equip you with everything that you need, even if you can only afford therapy for a certain amount of time, but the problem is still going to take six weeks to get better. So that's sometimes helpful for those folks that are get, get this sort of, knee-jerk apprehension about the duration of some of a treatment, you're not really giving them how long they need physical therapy for. You're telling them how long it's going to take to get better. And that could be on any schedule you want. Maybe you come in and see me once every other week. I give you a new program and then you go on your way. I'll save you a ton of money, but it's still going to take six weeks to get better. And maybe you can accelerate that a little bit by coming in more often for sure. But you know, it's important that you're giving them the timeline of their diagnosis, not necessarily you know, exactly what they need for physical therapy. That's helpful if you need to dismount that and kind of backtrack and for the, for those folks that can't afford uh, to come in on the frequency that you want them to come in for. And I'd be interested to see, um, I really like the addition that you've made to the what, why and the three hows where you're asking them uh, how long they think it's going to take. And I, I would, I'd like to see if you, if you can try it for us and report back, I'd like to see if what happens if you do that in the beginning of the assessment, not at the end. So your reveal becomes a very smooth transition where you're basically doing the magic. But if you ask them in the very beginning of the assessment, before you start, so uh, you're in for your knee. Have you had physical therapy before? No, I haven't. Great. Well, you know, based upon your knee condition, how long do you think it's going to take for your knee to get better? Ask them in the beginning, because I'd be curious to know if that, what that changes uh, versus asking them in the end, right before you tell them. And uh, for those of you that are listening, if you've ever gotten the response, well, you're the doctor, you tell me. Uh, there's a great comeback for that, which is, well, I know the answer. I just want to hear your opinion first. <laughs> if you ever get that as a comeback from your patient, if you say to them, you know, well, how many, how many sets do you think you can do? And they go, well, you're the doctor. You tell me kind of like in that kind of like annoyed voice. You just say, well, no, no, I know how many sets I think you can do. I just want to hear your opinion before I give you my opinion. So I don't bias your opinion that usually knocks that objection down almost instantaneously. Um, but have you ever tried doing it in the beginning? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think he usually does do it in the beginning. Like he does it as part oh, of you the do. subjective kind of. Like I do it as part of the subjective before I do any type of, uh, Assessing. Oh, good, good, yeah, good. Yeah. Okay, I thought you were doing it at the end, and I, I, I like it in the beginning, and I think it's a, it's a very important addition. I hope people include uh, that patient, that patient perspective component, especially with duration, especially yes. if you're a cash-based practice, right? Because then you really need to modulate their expectations. Uh, if they say, you know, well, you know, my, my buddy, they're, they're plantar fasciitis went away in a week. You're like, well, <laughs> you're 300 pounds. I don't know. It's gonna go away in a week. You don't say that, but I'm just, you know, it's good to modulate expectations early. Um, and then one other thing I think we should add to speaking about what, why, and the three hows is that if you notice 
we didn't actually treat the patient at all. So I know we talked about like not being stingy and people were probably thinking like, oh, well, what, I'm supposed to just treat this patient for free, right? But no, you're not supposed to treat the patient for free. You're supposed to do the assessment, allow them to have the experience and let them know exactly how you will treat them. But actually starting the treatment process does not happen during this assessment. Yeah, that's when I... I'm so so glad you brought that up. Yes, same. Um, Because that's one of the mistakes that I I made in the beginning too. Um, So I, I made two mistakes, you guys, if you're counting. The first one, maybe more, maybe more, but definitely two that's been highlighted in this um, episode. The first one was, if you remember, I, I tried charging $20 for the consultation, which backfired. Um, the second one was I, I would treat a little bit or give them something to try out uh, on their own. So what happened would, what would happen would be if I treated, it was a lose-lose situation. Check this out. If I treated them just to get them better, stick one needle in, let it marinate, see if they get better, or, or do a little bit of eye stem just to see if they get better. I know they, where you're going. Right. They get, they get better just enough where they, it's no longer a pressing issue. They don't need you anymore. You got rid of their They don't come back. Yeah, they come back, right? And then if you don't get them better, better then, they, <laughs> then like, it's not going to work. They don't come back. <laughs> that's right right. you never treat on day one it's so crazy when i go into i go into clinics if i ever do prn work and uh you know and they hear i don't treat i'm like i don't treat on day one you don't treat on day one i'm like never never treat on day one i mean you are treating them because you're giving them education you can bill it as nine seven five three oh no nine seven five three five which is your self-care uh, patient education codes, you can still bill them if you're, if you are charging for your, if you're, excuse me, if you are uh, submitting, um, for your initial assessments, you can still put in for nine, seven, five, three, five, but you never treat them on the day of the eval because it's a lose, lose. <laughs> so true. Yeah, so I mean, true. So true. Any, any other mistakes you want to highlight before? I, I got to run, but I, I do want to throw one more, one more mistake into the pool, which is when yeah. you do a free pain assessment on somebody that you don't want to treat, uh, mm. Don't treat them. <laughs> I've made that mistake don't twice. <laughs> yeah, I've made that mistake twice in my career. Whatever. I've I've gone through a free bandit episode and realized in the process I really did not want to treat this person. Um, they were rude. Uh, they were inconsiderate. This kind of thing. These are the kinds of things I don't tolerate. Um, and I treated them anyway. And that you know I I, I scheduled them. That was a mistake. If, if you do a free pain assessment, you're not just, they're not just interviewing you, you're interviewing them. Right. I think it's important. I sometimes I'll actually tell them that as a, listen, the whole point of the free pain assessment is to make sure that, that I am the right match for you and that you are the right match for me. Mm-hmm. I'll, will actually say that because they appreciate that. They're like, okay, that makes sense. Like we want to be compatible. And if you ever do an assessment and I don't care how much of a fan somebody is of like, Oh my God, that was amazing. That was the best thing I've ever, ever, ever. Anybody, nobody's ever done an assessment like that. Great. I'm so excited to get started. And you're like, Oh my God, I don't want to work with this person. You have to be honest that I would say that I've made that mistake a number of times and I regret it every single time. Cause eventually if that person is not cooperative, if they're not a good person, if they're rude, it just shows up as problems down the road. You just, you have essentially invited um, the devil, if you will, right into your, into your home and you never want to do that. Um, And if you ever get anybody where they're just not the right fit for you, be honest with them and say, listen, I'm so glad that you got a lot out of today's assessment, but you know, I, I just don't think this is the right fit, but I do have a couple of other recommendations for you. And you simply just recommend a friend or, 
you know, send them to a different service. You, you can't abandon them. You have to give them at least, at least we used to give them at least two options, um, of other places to go, but, uh, you know, don't, don't sell your soul, you know, as a, as a therapist, make sure that you're honest. That's right. Thanks so much for listening to the Performance Doc Academy podcast. Make sure to head over to www.performancedocacademy.com where you can learn everything that you need to know about how to start, grow, and eventually sell your very own physical therapy practice. We are going to teach you step by step. It is all of the information and knowledge that we wish that we had when we started out in our own practices. And this is going to save you thousands and thousands of dollars in mistakes. Head over to www.performancedocacademy.com. We'll see you there.